Samuel Belke was last seen on October 14th of 2006 near the Cleetwood Cove area at Crater Lake. And Sammy uh, walked away from the overlook where they're at into a forested area. Over 200 people searched for the boy, but he was never found. If you were there Saturday, please call the tip line so that the, the proper authorities can know how to get my son back safely. Everyone out there searching, I appreciate everything you're doing, and I just want my little boy back. Thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is Mike Vandebogart. How's it going, Joe? Uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, before we get started, I've got a couple updates, some exciting updates. Our first update relates to the Arvin Nelson case. Uh, for a couple episodes, we've been telling telling you guys about an interview we have planned. Well, we've, we've got it scheduled now uh, with two people that have known Arvin for a long time, have hiked with him, and we we should have that interview out before the end of the year. It's it's kind of some inside baseball with Arvin, who he was, what type of person he was. Um, they hiked with him in the area he went missing, so it should be a, a great interview. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, the, the second update I have is we've got an exciting uh, collaboration coming up. We've we're going to be collaborating with the website strangeoutdoors.com. If you've ever been to their website, they they cover a lot of <clears throat> these mysterious cases, and they've got a lot of great articles on there, and we're looking forward to a future collaboration on new cases. So we got a lot of cool updates coming coming up here, so stay tuned. Yeah, great work on those, Mike. I know the, the interview's been very tough to coordinate because each of the two guys live on uh, West Coast and one's on the East Coast. They have kids, they have families, so uh, they're, they're excited about coming on the air. So it's going to be great for us to learn a, some new things about Arvin, get some new insights, potentially some theories from close friends outside of just what we looked at in the news. So that will be great. Yep. Before we get kicked off, definitely want to do a shout out to Verger CBD Products for their continued support of our show. If you've been listening, you've heard a lot about them in the past. They make great topical products, pain products. They have a couple edible products. So visit their website, vergermed.com. That's V-E-R-D-U-R-E-M-E-D.com. All right, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. October 6th, 2006. Eight-year-old Samuel Belke and his father Kenneth were staying at the Diamond Lake Resort 
nine miles from Crater Lake National Park. Sam and his father decided to take a drive into Crater Lake and stop at the Cleetwood Cove Overlook to take in the beauty of the park. About a quarter mile east of the Cleetwood Cove Trail, Samuel and his father parked, got out of the car, and began walking into Crater Lake. After a few minutes of walking, eight-year-old Sam crossed the road and ran off into the woods. Seeing his son run into the woods, Ken chased after him, but to his shock, when he got to the woods, Sam had vanished, never to be seen or heard from again. Join us this week as we piece together the mysterious disappearance of Samuel Belke. Samuel Belke went missing in Crater Lake National Park near the Cleetwood Cove uh, Overlook. Now, Joe, have you ever been to Crater Lake? No, and ever since we did our last episode, uh, a friend of mine uh, just went and he said it was gorgeous. And they went because they, they listened to the show and he was heading out that way, so they, they never thought to stop until they listened to it, which I thought was ironic because... It was about a missing person, but, <laughs> but no, he said it was really beautiful. And, and ever since then, if I get out to Oregon, that's definitely one of the places I want to stop at. Yeah, same here. I, I've never been there, but it's definitely on my bucket list of places to hike. So uh, Crater Lake National Park is located in Oregon and it's a pretty big park. It's about 286 square miles. Uh, it's an old park too. It was established in 1902 and it's a very popular park. They had in uh, 2017 about 711,000 visitors. So a very popular park. It's a beautiful place to visit. The water is crystal blue. It's uh, The pictures look amazing. Long before it became a national park, some, some interesting history here. There is um, a Native American tribe called the Klamaths, and there's actually a city named after them near this place. But they considered the lake to be a spiritual place that possessed great wisdom and uh, strength. So it's interesting. A lot of these amazing places that we have national parks at now used to be very spiritual Native American um, areas. So just a little bit of interesting history. I've got some kind of interesting facts about the area, Joe. So maybe I'll quiz you here. Okay. (laughs) Uh, What's the highest point in the park? Um. I'm going to guess there's not many places over 10,000 feet. Like I'm, I I feel like there's some mountains there, but it's not like there's no 14ers, I'm guessing. Actually, the highest peak is 12,000 feet. So you can do some pretty, pretty good uh, alpine hiking. I'm going to say I was kind of right then. You were kind of <laughs> right. Um, I won't quiz you anymore, but uh, yeah. a couple other interesting facts about the park. The lake is 1,949 feet deep, making it the deepest lake in the U.S., so... Just think about that. If you live in the Midwest, you could fit the Sears Tower into it, and I don't think you'd be able to see it. So it's a very deep lake. Interesting, uh, scientists estimated that it took over 250 years for Crater Lake to fill to its present level. So just think about that for a minute. A lot of trails in the park. There's 140 miles of trails in the park, and there's only been one person in the history of the park to descend to the bottom of the lake, which uh, was a guy named, now I'm going to butcher this, Mark Buktenka. And he, <laughs> I'm sure I butchered it. Buktenka. 
Buktenica, and yeah. he uh, he made it to the bottom of the lake in a submersible deep rover. I, I'm imagining probably similar to something that James Cameron went down into view the Titanic. So. Yeah, it would have to be with that much water. Then the poundage per square foot just would crush anything other than a special submarine. And uh, obviously, because this lake was created by a volcano, there's no flowing streams into it. So all of the water you see in the lake is from precipitation and snowmelt. So an interesting. I know we learned that last time, but uh, the, the new one is obviously that they say it took about 250 years. So, I mean, that's crazy. It's 250 years of rain and snowmelt to fill the thing up. And, uh, you know, they get a lot of snow there. So the climate is very uh, wintry and cold most of the year. Uh, they average about 533 inches of snow or over 44 feet a year. So this makes uh, it one of the most snowiest places in the world. Most of the year, so October through May, deep snow pretty much curtails access to most of the park. So keep that in mind about this case. So Samuel went missing in October. So you're getting into the period of the park where it gets very difficult to move around. So, yeah, they say snow covers the park for about eight months of the year. A very extreme weather. It gets very cold. Obviously, it's snowing 44 feet a year, so it, it's not uncommon to have a snow event. One snow event where it could snow, you know, five feet. That's insane. That's like there's there's very few days out of the year where there's just not snow on the ground, it just seems like. Yeah, so this is why park officials really stress that people visiting the park in the winter need to be prepared to be potentially stuck out there for, uh, you know, long periods of time because – as you'll find out later in this case, if you go missing in Crater Lake National Park during the winter, uh, search and rescue may not be able to get to you because sometimes the weather is bad enough they can't even they can't fly helicopters. Jeez. There's avalanche issues in the park, so that happens. It, so it's a very pretty dangerous park to hike when it's you know October through May, and even in the summer uh, there's a lot of lightning in the couple months that it's you know warmer out, and so they warn hikers about lightning strikes in the summer and which is funny because snow sometimes stays on the ground into july so your summer in crater lake is a month or two crater lake was created by a volcano the volcano collapsed about 7700 years ago to form what we know now as crater lake so uh, it's been there a while another interesting thing about crater lake that i think was a factor in this this case was it's heavily wooded and there's a lot of rock formations and drops and crevasses, and it's it's a real it's really rough terrain, and it's it's one of those areas where you could be walking down the trail and there could be somebody hiding off the trail and you might not see them, you know, yeah. five feet off the trail. It's that dense. That yeah, that and that makes it more likely that you're going to have those incidences where people can go missing and the search and rescue effort will just be hindered by the brush. Exactly. Yeah. So. We've uh, we've we probably covered a few other cases where the, br the brush is this thick, but definitely is a factor in this case. As far as the the dangers present in the park, like we said, the the number one danger is probably weather exposure. So if you're caught out there from October to May, and you're not prepared, the likelihood of you being able to survive is going to be very low. As far as animals, they do have black bears occasionally seen in the park. From my research, they, they don't have a precise number on how many. There are other animals in the park that include coyotes, elk, porcupines. The wildlife isn't going to be what gets you in this park. It's definitely going to be the weather. As far as vegetation, it's 
dominated by ponderosa pines. It sounds like an amazing place to hike. I'm sure because the weather shuts the park down for most of the year, it's probably really busy in July and August (laughs) in September. As far as, you know, shelter, there are a lot of rock outcroppings. So there is a chance if you got lost in the park that you could probably find shelter. Okay. But that would also make it harder for search and rescue teams to find you. So I would say if you if you're backcountry hiking in this park, it's it's a difficult park to hike in based on terrain, weather conditions. Anybody hiking there should take extreme caution when, you know, preparing. Yeah, it's kind of if you're going for the weekend, you might want to pack supplies for a 5-day stay to be extra careful, give yourself an extra couple days of of rations and things just to make sure that you have no issues and and have experience. <laughs> yeah, have experience and, you know, if I was doing a deep backcountry trip in Crater Lake, I'd probably carry one of those uh, search and rescue beacons. Oh yeah, just to just to play it safe. It's a cool park, but you gotta you gotta take precautions uh, for the terrain and uh, weather. So, uh, Joe, why don't you tell us a little about uh, Samuel? Sam Belke was male, age eight at the time of his disappearance, and that was in two thousand and six. Today's age, he'd be about twenty one years old, right about now. The time he went missing, he was four foot eight and weighed about 85 pounds. You know, just an average size eight-year-old kid. He had light brown hair, brown eyes. He was last seen in a long-sleeved black and green striped shirt, cargo pants, red suede slip-on shoes with rubber soles, and a blue winter coat. If he gets stuck out in the elements in those kinds of clothing, he's not going to survive long. No. Yeah, it's good for the day, but not... And overnight, especially in October, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, it was snowing in October here just a few days ago and it's, it can be really bad. And then up there, it's even worse than it is down, you know, we're in Milwaukee. It's much worse up in Northern Oregon. He, his personality, he was a passionate and bordering on stubborn. He did have Asperger's. So a lot of times that's where that stubborn can come from because People with Asperger's are very particular about certain things. He's got a high-functioning form of autism, essentially. So as a result of his condition, he had extreme reactions to bright lights and loud noises, uh, as you'd expect from someone with autism or, or Asperger's. From my research, a lot of the search and rescue, some of the techniques they used, they weren't able to use in this case because of uh, those reactions to specifically loud noises. Yeah. A lot of times in search and rescues, they'll blast really loud horns and things to try to draw people closer to the searchers, but they weren't able to do that this time. Yeah. You could scare them potentially deeper into the woods or especially with someone like that. And I won't get too deep into it. Actually, I'll wait till theory time, but yeah, you you wouldn't want to scare him deeper into the woods or anything. I, I am laughing because in the notes in occupation and hobby, it just says child. <laughs> 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 I almost like uh, uh, cut my reaction there when I uh, was reading through this, but that's funny. Just to give a high-level overview of the people that will be going through in this case, uh, these are the people you hear the names of. Kenneth was his father. Obviously, Samuel was uh, the young boy who was lost. Tim Evinger, he's an aircraft recovery investigator and a retired sheriff of the Klamath Co- in Klamath County, Oregon. Lyle Ahrens is a reporter from KOTI-TV. That's a local station in Klamath Falls. Ken Salazar is the Secretary of Interior. He was Secretary of Interior from 2009 to 2013. 
Heidi Streetman is a college professor at Regis University. Rudy Evanson was the PIO for the park. So that's a public information officer. And Pete Reinhardt oversees law enforcement at the park and is a division supervisor on the search. So those are all the people that you'll hear the names of or that were directly related to the, the search and rescue efforts. We mentioned a lot of these names just because this case back in 2006 kind of caught a lot of attention from uh, the local and national media. So there's a lot of different interviews from people talking about the case, the, the park, the National Park Service. As we're going through the timeline, we'll, we'll kind of sprinkle in some of those quotes from these people. And at least now you know who we're talking about. Yep. Sounds good. Samuel went missing uh, late afternoon on October 6th, 2006, which was a Friday. So like Joe mentioned in the summary, him and his dad were staying at Diamond Lake Resort, which is about nine miles away from C Crater Lake. I believe it's north of Crater Lake. That afternoon, Sam and his dad decided to drive into Crater Lake. On their drive into the lake, they decided to stop at this overlook called Cleetwood Cove. From the pictures, it looks like a. if, if you're not able to hike the park, you know, these overlooks look amazing. Great opportunity to get some pictures, take in the whole lake. I know when I go to a lot of these parks, they'll have those like pull-off. Is it kind of like a pull-off where there's like, not a, not a parking lot, but they have room for your car so you can get out, yep. snap a few photos, get back in and drive? Yeah, so it's a dirt pull-off. Um, if, if you've seen pictures of Crater Lake, the road kind of goes around the ring of the lake and it's, you know, you've got more mountainous terrain on the left side and then you've got the lake on your your right side but it's it's lower elevation so you've got kind of rocky outcroppings down to the lake so this overlook is kind of in between that and there's actually a trailhead not too far from this overlook too so it, you know people might I, I believe there was more room to park cars so you might be able to park your car here and hit that trailhead okay some of the reports i read stated that the father and son stopped there so late afternoon in october so it's going to be getting dark pretty early and they were going to play hide-and-seek. This just draws some red flags right away. This father knows his son has, you know, he's on the autism spectrum. I, I just don't know how smart it would be to, this time of year, that time of day, to, you know, start playing hide-and-seek in the park. I don't know. It just doesn't seem sit right with me. But I, and I don't know how valid. I, a couple of the reports said that. But so, like we said, they parked at this overlook and they actually parked a little farther east of it near a trailhead. At some point, Sam crosses the road, and he kind of climbs up this scree hill of rock. So like a, like a, just a hill of loose rock? Yeah. Okay. And I, I think the reports I read, it's about 50 feet up. He was up there, and one of the reports I read was there was a, a guy in a bicycle riding by, and Sammy was kind of up there, and he was getting ready. It looked like he was getting ready to like throw rocks at the guy in the bike. Oh. <laughs> you know, like any young kid, you know, they're just goofing around. And his dad yells to him to, you know, knock it off and come back. It was at this point where Sammy, instead of coming back to his dad, ran off into the woods. Almost instantaneously, his dad goes up after him, gets up this, you know, 50 foot loose rock hill, and his kid was just gone. In the report, does it say the cyclist witnessed this event? The cyclist. Uh, verified that he saw Sammy at the top of this hill. Okay, but he didn't talk about that whole Sammy ran away and his dad chased after him. I don't believe so. I think okay. the biker, the guy in the bike, kept going. Well, I think the reason I ask is because I think that gives a little credence to the father. Because we're gonna, we're obviously gonna look at every angle of this, and I was immediately thinking 
is this a dad who potentially did something? There's a little bit of a red flag in the back of my head, but there's a, a third party that was there and kind of witnessed the event that occurred when he went missing that, that changes things. So, all right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep going on. I want to hear more. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, like I said, his dad ran up this little hill, got to the tree line, his kid's gone. So he spends the next couple of hours trying to find him, yelling for him, flagging down passing cars. And eventually he flags down a car and he calls 911 to report his son was missing. This is late afternoon. By six o'clock that day, the National Park Service started putting searchers into the field. So a very fast response. I say it sounds like they started instantly. The first night they had up to 25 searchers in the field, including foot searchers, search dogs and tracking teams. While that's not a, a, a large search by any means, they, they did have people in the field from the, the first point of separation, which was that, that little hill of loose rock. The National Park Service said they're, they're treating this as a rescue mission, not a recovery mission. So they fully anticipated finding Samuel within a couple hours. Well, yeah, you have essentially them witness the area he went missing in where it's different where it's if it's a couple hours later and you kind of think he's in the spot like his dad was with him yeah and because of the terrain around the area where he went missing they you know they didn't anticipate sam getting too far it like we said it's very rocky terrain a lot of hazards uh very thick vegetation so it's not something that even an experienced person could move through quickly the national park service had even hoped he perhaps burrowed under some some of the thick vegetation or under a rock overhang. Next, I've got a quote from the, the park's PIO. So Evanson said, The rugged area has a lot of dead and downed trees, a lot of rock piles, a lot of places an eight-year-old could fit into. Sammy's family has let us know that one of the things he likes to do is curl up in small places. Right away, the park service is like, all right, he ran off the road. He's probably back in here maybe 10, 15 30 feet. He crawled under a tree or in a, you know, rock outcropping. We'll find him. They're searching. Nothing's happening. So park personnel uh, mounted the search. Unfortunately, the search started just before dark. And then the park service realized this is going to take a much larger effort. Mac Brock was the park natural resources officer. They called in the National Park Service incident management team and search teams from Mount Rainier and Yosemite National Parks. And they called in some national forest and local county officials. So I think early on they realized, all right, our limited search isn't finding him. We need to bring in the big guns now. We got to go all out. And because like we said, the weather can change in a dime in this place. And if they get snowfall, I mean, he's, he's yeah, done. And it's already got to be so cold being late October. The search was concentrated first on the immediate area around the spot where the boy was last seen and then gradually moved out to cover a three-mile radius, uh, Reinhardt said. And again, Reinhardt was the, he was the enforcement officer that was kind of overseeing the search at the time. Okay. Oh, and I said late October. It's still early October, but still, it's cold. <laughs> yeah, it's cold. Lindsay Clunes of the uh, Corvallis Mountain Rescue Unit said, to have an eight-year-old boy out there with just slip-on shoes would be life and death on a summer night at this altitude. But late fall and turning to snow, hopefully he's hidden, but that just makes it tougher. So the searchers, they know what he was in, and they know that, like this lady said, even in the summer at this altitude, that's going to be a tough night. Yeah, that's so sad to think about, too, as a, as a search and rescue person to be 
up against a timeline like that where you start searching and it's you're frantically looking for this child because I think deep down what they know is every single minute counts. Oh, absolutely. At that temperature and what they're doing. So it's it's like how fast can we go without going so fast we're overlooking things because I think they know deep down. I think I would have the same feeling just with my experience on the ambulance that if you get to a 12-hour mark overnight, the odds of finding in this becoming a rescue versus a recovery have drastically shifted towards the recovery. Real early on, uh, one of the rescue teams I read was a 20-member team called the Rogue River Hotshots, and they spread out in a line about 30 feet apart and then walked their assigned grid looking under rocks, downed logs, trees, and snow about six inches deep. A special rock climbing rescue crew from Yosemite National Park rappelled down the steep caldera walls uh, towards the lake. They had boats um, going along the shore, checking under the water. They even had horseback teams out there, and then they, they eventually opened the airspace up to um, helicopter search teams. So early on, they, they started deploying a lot of assets to try to find this kid because they understand every, like you said, every minute they, they spend looking for him, uh, it's going to become more difficult. We're on to the next day now. So it's October 7th, 2006. Uh, it's early Saturday morning. Tim Evinger, he was the, uh, like Joe mentioned earlier, uh, Tim was an aircraft recovery investigator that was brought in to help with the search. And he had a quote where he remembers the search the next day being very difficult because of the weather. They said, he said on Saturday, two feet of snow came into the park. And on top of that, he said the park was overwhelmed with the amount of people coming in. They set up staging area and now had assistance coming from all over trying to help. So you've got a combination of bad weather moving in and probably a little bit of, you know, you had a lot of people coming in, probably some communication issues with the different teams. It sounds like it wasn't the most orderly search the next day just because the scope got so big. On top of that, the National Park Service that morning got a limited helicopter search going. I think they were able to make six passes before the weather got so bad they had to land all the helicopters and Jeez. they weren't able to fly again. Yeah. You think about two feet of snow as well, like a kid lying down, that's going to cover him up oh, yeah. with an extra foot on top. And that's assuming he was able to survive the night. Yeah. Um, Cause you're going to have temperatures below freezing and it sounds like there's already snow on the ground. So Jeez. Um, that's yeah, awful. it's a tough situation. So the search continues on foot um, through the rest of Saturday. Obviously the search even on foot is going to be hampered due to the you know two feet of snow coming in. The search continues Sunday and Monday with no, you know, no updates. Then uh, on October 10th, which is a Tuesday, one of the tracking dogs showed signs of recognizing the boy's scent, but then the other dogs failed to confirm it. So maybe who knows what that one dog smelled, but it's a sign of hope that the dog picked up something. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like we said, the other dogs came in and failed to confirm uh, that day. Helicopter crews spotted tracks, which really got people excited that they were going to find something. But when they got a crew in there, they realized it was just tracks left by some wildlife in the park. Yeah. And again, you're now, what was this? Three days? Yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. Three days, a large snowfall. Three days, large snowfall. Eight-year-old boy with with a mental illness. Like, not in the proper yeah, clothing. Yeah. No training. Yeah. It's. I'm sure the searchers were just. You know they. I'm sure they're I'm hoping sure everyone for a kept miracle. Hope. Like you see yeah. the tracks and you're like, oh my gosh, like what if it's kind of like that that little uh, the bear boy that survived for three days with like no clothes on and and he right. said he was with a bear and no one knows what happened. It was basically like a miracle. You'll never know what happened with him, but it's like I'm sure these people are doing everything they can and just putting everything on the line. The search lasted for about a week. They never found. A, a single sign of what happened to him, where he went. They didn't, they didn't find any tracks. They didn't find any clothing. A lot of times in these cases, you'll see people suffering from hypothermia. They'll start uh, taking, you know, articles of clothing off. They didn't find any sign of that. They didn't find any sign of an- animal predation. Lyle Aarons, the local news reporter from the area, stated that at the peak of the search, they probably had about 174 searchers up there from all different types of search and rescue agencies, and they included units from neighboring counties, helicopters, search dogs, and, you know, nothing. And it's it's kind of a theme. Every one of these cases we do, yeah. these people just kind of vanish off the, the face of the earth. The official search and rescue went on for about a week, so I'm assuming it ended probably around October 13th, that time frame yeah. of 2006. Uh, after the... The official search ended. There was intermittent searching after that first week, but a lot of the heavy snowfalls uh, hindered that a bit. Uh, interesting, they they did bring a lot of technical climbing crews in, and they were you know descending seven hundred to a thousand feet down, even though it, it'd be highly unlikely that Sammy would have been able to, you know, navigate that kind of steep distance down. Sure. I'm sure they were frustrated. I mean, at that point, like you're grasping at straws and you're like, you know what, let's just try everything just to, you know, bring some closure to this family that's going through this terrible incident. Let's try and find it and let's go look in the craziest spots. Cause you never know. It's a bizarre case. And the, the search and rescue operation, while it, it kind of started off slow, really ramped up to a, a big uh, crew of people and an interesting kind of sidebar to this is a lot of the interviews and research that we did kind of some of the people kind of appear to be frustrated with the national park service at this time because now this has come up in other cases is the lack of um, record keeping on missing people. So yeah, we've talked about this several times and how, Records are just like destroyed or lost in like a move or something like that on on open cases. And there's a lot of institutional knowledge. So you you might have some you might have a searcher in the park that works for the park service in Crater Lake, and they work there for 30 years. They've got a lot of great knowledge built up of the go the comings and goings of the park. But then they retire and all that knowledge disappears. Yeah, there's no effective brain dump to transfer the information. Yeah, and uh, Tim Evinger was quoted in one of the articles I read. He said, it appears that the national park is within a county. He says, it appears that a national park is within a county. It really is its own sovereign place. And so we received a phone call that there was a missing child, and we were very anxious to send searchers. We were waiting to send investigators, and the park often used their own staff initially. 
They are sometimes an island unto themselves that is somewhat exclusive jurisdiction. So kind of what he's getting at is that a lot of times in his experience, the National Park Service doesn't initially bring in a lot of outside help. They try to deal with it internally. That might not always be the best route. I, I would think if you have a missing child, you bring in every able-bodied person that can get out there and search. Well, here, I'm going to I'm gonna play devil's advocate for one thing, because it sounds like the frustrations of a man that's been affected by this search. Because I, I can imagine, oh, well, A, I have a lot of kids. If one of mine, and they're at that age range, it would destroy me. And I feel like, I know just from being a paramedic, anytime I had calls with little children, it just, it feels worse when yeah. you're dealing with a child. So you have a guy who's probably got a lot of emotional pent up frustration from this case. Whereas if you're in the park service, I wonder how many missing children calls they get a year that are just like this. And what usually ends up happening is they'll go out with a small team right away in the area and they find them within an hour or so. So it, when I looked at the timeline, because I agree, it's like, in hindsight, it's, why didn't you just call everyone right away? It sounds like they responded immediately with a sizable team. What did you say? It was like 20 people? 20 professional searchers within the first couple hours of the reported disappearance. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they had a big group out there originally, and it seemed like very quickly, you know, after a couple hours, it started ticking in their heads, okay, this is serious, and they started making bigger phone calls. So, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt of without knowing how many times they get that call a year. The interesting thing, going back to the Tim Evinger has another quote in, you know, down farther down in this article. And so he's a former Klamath County sheriff. And he was quoted, he said, in the work I do with missing airplanes, we're always trying to look at that missing airplane list. When I was a sheriff of Klamath County, I could get my hands on a list of missing people in a matter of minutes. If you have an area that you don't even know there's missing people, if you have a specific jurisdictions that don't have that data, it makes it really difficult going back to reinvestigate when more information comes. So I've, I've, this is a theme I've read over and over in different cases is people do get a frustration with the National Park Service in, in that they don't track on a, a national level the disappearances. And it makes it really hard to say you have several disappearances that are similar maybe in different parks, it, it makes it really hard to, you know, piece things together when you don't have the data. This is a common theme I've, I've read from other investigators. I've even run into this. I've tried to file several uh, Freedom of Information Acts with various national parks. And a lot of times it just gets returned because they have no data. Yeah, I think I think that's a very valid, legitimate gripe. And like you said, we've talked about it where they have terrible record keeping nationally as a whole of a database because, and that's where I would agree with his original statement that they kind of work like an own, their own sovereign nation with data. It takes guys like David Politis to write books, to start really record keeping because simply because he's interested in it. I mean, you have a, a private citizen that's doing it because he was an investigator and he's interested. And that, quite honestly, is probably the most complete and accurate data set of missing persons in in our country. And it took a guy with a passion to do it versus 
this national park system should be cataloging this information. In recent years, they since um, I've started doing some of my freedom information requests, they do have a system now that is tracking incidents in the park. Okay, it's still not a you know true missing persons list, but it's at least digital files versus paper in a file cabinet somewhere that gets forgotten or destroyed. Yeah, it's a digital, it, you know, it tracks all the different incidents. So everything from, you know, a DUI in the park to a, a murder or a, a death from, a, you know, an accident. I want everyone listening to, we're not, we're not disparaging the National Park Service or anything like that. Uh, they do a lot of great work and they, you know, the, the professionals involved in the search and rescue missions, their number one goal is to, you know, they're going to be out in the woods looking for people. Well, and in the government, I mean, your marching orders come down from on high. I mean, everyone there is doing their job to the best of their ability and what they're supposed to be doing. This is more of, I, yeah, I would, I would agree with Mike. I don't want to make it sound like we're stomping all over the guys who work at the park, even the top dogs at the park. This is from on high at the government level. This is like a congressional level. Who's the secretary of the Department of the Interior type stuff? Like This is where that decision has to get made because otherwise I'm sure you do have some park rangers that are trying to catalog, but I mean, they're going to be doing it with whatever resources they have on their own time on a non-official level. This would have to be a change at the federal level that would get handed down to these parks. And and quite honestly, I think it's a legitimate thing that should start getting tracked in addition to entering in historical data into a data set. So you can start really analyzing the data and drawing conclusions or, or getting some basic analytics out of where these incidences are happening, you know, what was the weather like? What was basically what David Politis is doing, putting government resources behind it so it's not just a single guy with a passion. And he's doing a great job, but in reality, you, you need this is a big effort to really start pulling out some trending data out of this set. Well, yeah, and I think it really, it probably really falls on the shoulders of people in Congress because I know. You know, the Department of Interior and the National Park Service probably not getting the funding that they need in the first place. Uh, they're, they, you or know, they're spending it incorrectly in stupid areas that are out of the rangers' controls. Or And that's that's no slight on any of the parks or, you know, any of the 23,000 people working for the Department of Interior. I think this, this really is a, a political thing, and it really has to come from top down. Yeah. And actually, um, Heidi, so we mentioned Heidi Streetman. She was, she's the uh, professor at, she's a college professor at Regis University. In an interview, she says um, she finds it unthinkable that there is no accountability from the government when it's easy to be accountable, especially in this day and age of technology. So she actually, after this case, started a petition to create a centralized national database in which all missing persons are accounted for in our national parks, forests, and BLM lands. So there are people trying to get this done. But yeah, like Joe, like we were saying, I I think it's got to come down, you know, from Congress. It's yeah, they got to get the funding to do it. I mean, it it would probably to really track this on a level where the data would be useful. It would take a lot of work. Oh, yeah, it it would it, it wouldn't be an easy task by any means, but I think it could really pour some insights. So uh, just before I get to the official theories, which are in our theories, I wanted one last quote to kind of. Give us this conspiracy Bigfoot vibe. Yep, we got um, we got to look at all possibilities. <laughs> so Les Stroud, 
Um, if any of you are familiar with him, he was the guy who was on the TV show Survivor Man. And he had a quote relating to this case and some other cases similar to this. Um, he said, the reality is that if park authorities were open about how many people are missing from national parks, public parks, and wilderness areas, then those of us who are going to shove our fear and still go out there, we can go out better protected. That's what I think the authorities should do. I think they should come clean and say, here's all the information. Now you know. We don't know what's going on, but at least you should protect yourself. So that's uh, <laughs> from a guy who is um, you know, a trained survivalist, and that's a pretty you know, cryptic kind of creepy quote in the sense that, you know, he's kind of saying like, they don't know what the hell's going on out there. These people are going missing without a trace. And, you know, the park service, the government there, you know, everybody's kind of just, you know, being very coy about what's going on and divulging information. So. Yeah. Like they don't want to scare people away, but it's like, they're not properly informing about the real dangers and I think people get complacent. They think, oh, it's a national park. You know, there's kids running around everywhere. It's completely safe. And quite honestly, it's, you know, for the majority of the people that go, yeah, they go and there's no incident. But it's, you're in the wilderness. It's still dangerous. Yeah. And I think, you know, Joe, you and I have backcountry hiked. And they always make you watch those those videos before you get your permit. So I think the people that are, you know, backcountry hiking like you or myself or, you know, some of the friends we hike with, we're aware of the risks and the dangers. Oh yeah. I think the people that are less aware are, you know, someone like Sam and his dad who just drive into the park for the day. Yeah. Anytime I go to national park, I research it for months, especially if I'm backcountry hiking. Cause I want to know what's the weather, like what's the average weather for that. So I'll look for several years to trend it to say, Hey, all right, I'm going to go in early October. What should I expect? What's the worst that could happen? What's the best that could happen? And I usually overpack food or I'll just, I always have, you know, a backup for whatever I'm doing. I'd probably avoid a park like Crater Lake from October to May. I mean, yeah, uh, it, there's no, unless you're training for some Antarctic hike or something, it doesn't seem like it would be beneficial or even enjoyable to, to trek through a potential, you know, f 10 foot snow drift on a day that it snowed four feet. So I, I'll quickly go through two of the official theories, and then I'll let Joe, you can tell me what you think might have happened. Okay. So, <laughs> um, first off, uh, Reinhardt, who I believe is the, he was the guy running the search operation, he ruled out abduction in his mind. Um, he said he didn't rule out 100%. He said it was very slim chance that Samuel had been abducted only because traffic in the park at that time was very light and the father only saw two cars go by in the same time he searched uh, and the two entrances to the park were staffed and no one saw the boy in the cars leaving so I think it's you know unless somebody abducted him and then took him deeper into the park I think you could probably rule abduction out no I agree with that I think my gut reaction initially was there was nothing like that going on yeah. And now Tim Evinger, the uh, the investigator that was brought in, he was quoted saying, while there are many uh, theories, the strongest theory is that he was in those woods somehow and he likely, in my opinion, got covered up by snow and then maybe became victim of an animal later on. I believe that when a child goes missing and you throw and that you throw every resource you have at it initially and 
I would like to seen that happen with Sammy that night. So again, uh, Tim, this, he, he feels strongly about this case and he, he feels that the likely outcome is Sam got covered up by snow that night. And then, um, you know, later on became a victim of, you know, an animal. So that's the, the leading theory on this case. What wild theories do you have? (laughs) I would say, (laughs) honestly, none of them are wild. I'd say, although this one's strange in regards to the visual and the time window in which he went missing was very small. Yeah. I tend to agree with what Tim is. I think I'm kind of on Tim's train as far as theories go where, and I think that's where a lot of his frustration is coming from. I haven't even yeah. heard him say these things, but just the way you're reading it, I'm trying to put myself in his shoes. Yeah. He is very frustrated. Mm-hmm. He's very, very frustrated and emotionally invested in this case. And the way his quote, cause I'm reading the quote that you wrote down and it's word for word, how he said it. It's like the words he used and how he said it is almost like, this kid is laying there somewhere and we couldn't find him. Yeah. And it's like, you, you know, he's probably beating himself up just like other people involved in the search are for, and he's frustrated and he's just pissed off. Just like I think any good human being would be. It's like that whole idea of like, we probably stepped over him. We probably were right by him and we just couldn't freaking find him. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's something all the searchers, uh, go through in these cases where they don't find anything. I think even in the cases where they find the remains of somebody, I think that gives you know the search team closure. Sure. That they're at least able to give the family closure, like we found your loved one. But in cases like this where they find nothing, it's got to just nag at you. Like, what did we do? What could we have done different? Well, and even in the, even in the cases where they find the bodies and sometimes they're just way off into nowhere land, it, it can make you breathe a sigh of relief that if you were on a search team, you didn't search an area that made sense and miss them. And then they died. Like that would be awful if you didn't do, but if a lot of the case we have where they're unexplained, it's, they end up like miles from where they should be. And it doesn't even make sense. Or like a little kid's body's up 10,000 feet up a mountain. It's like, they wouldn't even be able to get up there on their own. How did this happen? Yeah, no, there's a definitely a, a case coming up that uh, we'll, we'll look at where, you know, something like that happens. Um, I, I tend to agree with Tim and, and you, I think he likely was, you know, he went into the woods being that he had, um, you know, the mental condition that he did. Um, and he, you know, ran into the woods. He, he probably, maybe he, he got injured in one of the, the obstacles or he fell into a crevasse or, climbed into some kind of cave or something, then it, you know, it snowed two feet. Yeah. Or sadly the search people were scaring him deeper into the woods. Like yeah, with, potentially with the Asperger's and afraid of noises. You have dogs and flashlights and people calling your name. Maybe he was hiding, which is just even more sad to think of. But yeah, I think, I think it, it's, this one is strange, but it's almost strange, but kind of clear cut based on all the conditions and the, and the situation. You know, so this happened in 2006. It's 2019. It's just every time we have a case like this that's a little older, it it always bugs me that they never find the remains. Yeah, I know Crater Lake has got a lot of very tricky terrain, and it's very dense. And you know, it 
if this isn't an area where people backcountry hike, they might never find the remains. But that always bugs me. You you think over 10 years later that somebody would have found something, a piece of clothing. Oh, and as the show goes on with all the episodes we're going to do, and there's so many more where they're never found, it just it's like kind of that idea. It's like, is there just remains everywhere in all these national parks that no one's ever finding? Like... Right. Yeah. It's a little, little creepy, but, um, so yeah, I tend to agree with you and Tim that, you know, he succumbed to the elements probably the first night. Yeah. Um, Based on the weather and stuff. Yeah. And I think that environment would be hard for anybody to survive with those clothes on. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you have no training, I mean, he's, he camped a little bit, but with no survival training, even if you had survival training, that's going to be a tough, tough night. Yeah, agreed. Um, so, well, uh, once again, Joe, <laughs> they they didn't find the the person in our episode. Nope. But yeah, I think I I think our theories are more clear cut than a lot of episodes. I think this one is is pretty explained very well by by what we think. And yeah, I th- I think that's it. This one doesn't baffle me like like no. some of the cases we do. Um, it's more of but- an unfortunate story. Yeah, but uh, we definitely want to hear your theories. So please share them on on Facebook, Twitter or whatever social media platform you choose to use. And I'd say uh, whenever you're out hiking, camping, walking around a park, always remember, leave no trace. 